All right, so uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We're finishing our little, our little look at 2 Corinthians. So next week we'll have the, uh, next week we'll have, have the town hall. And then the week after that, Pastor Ryan will be starting uh, season two of The Chosen back up. So, um, and then uh, I'm going to be examining uh, tomorrow and Friday where I'm going to go from here. But there will also be a class here in the sanctuary. Um, it's not, Pastor Ryan and I, are not competing, and anybody else that teaches a class on Wednesday night, uh, it's no competition. I want you to go where you, are, uh, interest, where you feel most compelled and interested to learn. Uh, something that I decided a while back was that uh, we're just going to offer a variety of, of ways to learn, and people can go where they, uh, to the style um, and study that uh, most appeals uh, to their spiritual needs. So, um, I encourage you, if, uh, if you've been looking forward to that, to go, and I'll have something going on in here, and then there may be somebody else that'll teach a class at some point um, as well, and so um, just trying to keep you informed of what's going on. So 2 Corinthians, we're actually going to start in the last uh, four verses of chapter 13 tonight, because, I, because Paul essentially sums up his final warning and greeting in these verses, and then we'll go back and pick up where his line of thought started. So for uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. First of all, some of your translations might read different than what I just said. In fact, my, uh, my translation is a 1985 NIV, and it says, finally, brothers, goodbye. It says, aim for perfection and listen to my appeal. Um, without getting into a lot of boring Greek syntax, essentially, um, we just realized we misunderstood some of the Greek, and there was also... Um, there's some, there's some variation in a couple of uh, main copies of the scribes of this letter. So, uh, but, the main, but the main thing, the main point is not lost here. Um, Paul sums up what, what he's been saying all through uh, his letter to the Corinthians, which is that regardless of the strife, rejoice, uh, that the primary aim, no matter how difficult this conversation is to have, is to be restored to one another and reconciled to one another and to be whole and to get back to the work of building one another up and being unified in the faith and baptism that we have been given through Christ Jesus and that we enjoy in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 14 uh, is really, really notable because it's, uh, one, it, it is the most concise uh, reference to the Trinity in all of the Scriptures. Okay, If you see there, you see that Paul very clearly references the three parts of the Trinity as well as the unique um, character or work that came from them. Okay, So if you look in verse 14, he, he notes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, so there's Son, uh, the love of God or Yahweh, there's Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So if, you ever, if, if you're ever... Uh, if you ever want to give a clear picture that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine, this is the single most concise and clear verse in all of Scripture that the early church fathers, that the apostles were taught and recognized that God was three in one. If you have, uh, if you have those of the, uh, 
the Mormon or Latter-day Saint faith uh, show up at your door and there's any question about uh, the, the Godhood of Jesus, this is a verse to go straight to and say, well, in my Bible, this is how Paul talks about Jesus. He puts Him together with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, and he talks about the three distinct works of God. And I think this is also significant. So in sun- on Sunday mornings, I'm trying, trying to communicate really clearly that when God was asked by Moses, His faithful servant and, uh, and close friend, to show Himself, God proclaimed His name, and His name was love, essentially, right? We're learning about how He said, the Lord, the Lord, uh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, um, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, um, but not, uh, uh, not leaving the guilty unpunished. So, His love is the, lo- the love of the Father is the love of the Son, is the love of the Spirit. God is love. Old Testament God and New Testament Jesus are not God 1.0 and God 2.0. God is love. And he says that is, that's how he describes God the Father here. He says the love of God. And then he says, he says the Son, Jesus Christ, made it possible for us to once again enjoy the, the favor of that love by His grace. He gave us unmerited favor. We rejected the love. We sinned against the love. We rebelled against the love. We, we acted in complete and total uh, hatred towards the love by being the exact opposite of it in our sin. But the grace of Jesus allows us to enjoy the love of God. And now that grace and that love live in us through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we teach people, we, we, we taught people uh, when I was growing up that Jesus lives in your heart. But actually, it is the Holy Spirit that lives in your heart. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Messiah lives in you by the Holy Spirit. And the only, I don't, I'm not seeking to be controversial or to be cutting edge, uh, but rather, one of, one of my goals uh, in teaching all the time is to not be a church that treats the Holy Spirit as a forgotten God, as Francis Chan called them. There's a book called Forgotten God about how we tend to really focus on God the Father and Jesus the Son, and we often miss um, and misunderstand the Holy Spirit. And they are three in one. They all uh, are, are, are God. So, um, really significant stuff there. Now, um, what, at, this, these verses actually set up the preceding verses in that uh, you can see, just as you could see in uh, His introduction, that even though all the stuff in between is pretty harsh, uh, or it can read pretty harsh, it can seem awkward. Like I, sometimes when I'm reading Paul's stuff here, I'm like, man, that is so awkward. The conversations he's having and the, con- and the conversations that must be happening when he's in person. No wonder he's so upset and so sad if all of this has been going on and he has to speak about it in this way. But here in the conclusion, can you feel the warmth in the conclusion? Can you, can you feel the heart? of Paul as he's seeking to uh, reconcile and uh, bring this church into the fullness of the character of Christ. It's really obvious as you read these verses that Paul loves these men and women really deeply. Um, and so with that in mind, it, we often make jokes about uh, verse 12, but we don't need to make any jokes about holy kisses. It's clear that that, that, that verse comes from the purity, unity, and close relationship that the love of Christ creates 
in his churches. Um, This letter has been a reflection of the deep familial love that can be found in the church. I was actually just discussing last night uh, with, with the, the ministry team about one of the challenges of being a pastor is to hold out hope that the incredibly high standard and vision that the Scriptures put forth of a church family that really loves each other deeply and works through all kinds of differences and conflicts for the sake of Christ and to hold up this high standard and high vision uh, of, of like Acts chapter 2 for, for a church that is united in fellowship and meets together regularly and prays and prays and prays and prays and is dedicated to the Scriptures and to the teaching of those that God's anointed to teach and that, that high vision, uh, it, it's taxing to continually hold out hope because it does sometimes feel like that the reality of uh, of modern-day society, that, that, that uh, the tyranny of the urgent of everything going on around us and all of the pressures and temptations and um, differing personalities and differing opinions, just it's impossible. Like, I'm just going to wait for heaven because this side of heaven, I don't know. But Jesus taught us, pray, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I get really excited about that. This might go up an octave. Um, but really, like... Uh, Really, on earth, I, every, time, every time I rehearse the Lord's Prayer, that line shocks me to my core. <laughs> that heaven, we, we are to pray, and why would Jesus instruct us to pray that except that it could be a reality by the transforming grace of Jesus and the sanctifying work of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's all through Scripture. You see the apostles hold out this hope because they walked with Jesus and they talked with Jesus and then they were anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Though they were ordinary men, people took note they had been with Jesus and they lived completely and utterly differently. And so we hold out this hope. And that's what's going on here. Paul is, uh, is, is deeply hopeful that even this messy, fractured, messed up church could... could be the family and the people that it was intended to be. And I, I think about these last verses as the moment. Like, have you ever, um, unf- have you ever had the unfortunate uh, circumstance where a deep, relationship, a deep relationship, the trust has been broken or expectations have been unmet and you have to, you, you have, to have a hard conversation. You have to have a hard conversation. But in the end... You dread the conversation, you're suspicious about the conversation, you're afraid of the conversation, but then you have it, and it is just as hard maybe as you thought it would be, but in the end, you're hugging it out, and you're smiling through tears, and a peace comes over you. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever experienced that? Had to to approach somebody who shattered your trust, or who wasn't meeting clearly set expectations of the relationship? But then in the end, you're able to, through tears, smile at one another, extend the olive branch, forgive, and be made whole, and you, and you hug, and as you hug, you just know that the peace of Christ has transcended the situation. And anybody been blessed to get through something like that? Yeah? No? No? Never? You, oh, well, goodness. And we might need to talk about how to resolve those kinds of things. Uh, because I know we've, how many of you have ever had your trust broken or had expectations unmet? Well, okay. Yeah, we have some work to do then. Uh, because in the family of God, what we, one of the overarching themes of 2 Corinthians 
is that massive conflict does not have to result in separation and forever pain. Okay? When we read this letter, to, to get to this point in chap, at the end of chapter 13, and to realize that that was actually Paul's aim from the very beginning, if you go back to the end of chapter 1, as he begins to, uh, to warn them, he says, the God of all comfort, you're, we're going to need the God of all comfort because we're about to deal with some heavy stuff. You've brought some pretty severe accusations, and you've been wishy-washy on what you say you, what you, say you want, and... Uh, but then he says, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Because we don't lord over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. And when you read those words and then you flip to the end of the letter and you see him admonishing, him with, admonishing them with gentleness and you hear the love and the desire that they would be united in a holy kiss, and he sends the greetings of the saints. You can see that intense conflict is not meant in the family of God to result in divorce, separation, and forever pain. So picking up where we left off, uh, tonight's message is called Hugging It Out. So picking up where we left off, we'll go back to chapter 12, verse 19, uh, and look at how Paul hugs it out. How does Paul hug it out? So verse 19, chapter 12, verse 19, he has finished, remember last week he finished his, uh, his experiment with boasting, and uh, so he's finished that, and now he says, he's, he starts to explain himself and, and the little experiment he's been on. He says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends is for your strengthening. Everything we do, we've been speaking in the sight of God. So he says, as God is my witness, we have been speaking as those in Christ. We're not, defend, we're not looking out for our own interests. We're not looking out for our reputation. We honestly don't care what you think of us. Literally thought you were a stranger walking in just now, Ben. Hi, how are you? Um, <laughs> sorry, I just, it was shocking. Um, so, he's not, he's not worried about his own reputation. What he is most of all worried about is that they would be strengthened and built up in the way that God has hoped for them as children of God. Um, so, hugging it out, first of all, means seeking to strengthen one another above all else. Seeking to strengthen one another above all else. And I would draw your attention to another Pauline letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you, if, if you begin reading at uh, chapter 1, or chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 4, But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day would surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. 
Therefore, I always, tell, I always like to remind you, whenever you see a therefore, you look and see what it's there for. Therefore is a context word. It means everything you've just read has led to this statement. So therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. So he says, in light of, in light of what Jesus has done for you and in light of what it, the grand vision and hope that he declared it's leading to, what do we do? We encourage one another and build one another up. We strengthen one another. We seek to strengthen the, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ being the church, capital C, and all the little c churches that make up that body called the church or the body of Christ. So for Paul and the other New Testament writers, there are really two purposes that are communicated throughout their letters. The twin purposes of the church are to reach out in evangelism, Evangelism means to share news either by preaching publicly or through the witness of your life. So evangelism, sometimes it gets a bad rap in the church. It sounds really churchy. Uh, there's negative connotation of, sp- of street preachers who communicate more hate than, uh, than love and forgiveness and, and all of that. But evangelism is a clear purpose of the church to share the news of Jesus through public preaching and the witness of our lives. The other, the other purpose is to strengthen one, an- one another in, through edification. And edification just means um, sharpening and building up both, uh, both in character and in knowledge. Okay? So there's two purposes that Paul and the New Testament writers repeatedly uh, share that the church has to reach out in evangelism and to strengthen one another, the body, the brothers and sisters, to love each other, encourage each other, and build each other up. In other words, we grow out and we grow up to the glory of God. We grow out and we grow up to the glory of God. It's kind of like uh, loving God and loving neighbor. We love God, and when we love God, it causes us to go out and love our neighbor. So the purpose of the church is having received love from God to go out into the world and to, uh, and to go uh, shoulder to shoulder inside the church. Just tracking with me? Okay. Uh, the love of Christ pursues and gives so that it may build. So that it may build. He told His, he told his disciples that he, was, that he was ushering in a kingdom. He was ushering... When a king, uh, begins, to, when a king begins to establish his kingdom... He begins to build. He builds his court. Okay? He gathers those around him who are going to be his apostles who are sent out to speak the king's edicts and commands and uh, the proclamations of the, what will mark his kingdom. And then he begins to build uh, cities and build, um, build buildings that serve, uh, serve the world that he's been charged to govern. So when, God, when Jesus announces his kingdom, he's announcing somebody's building and he talks about it in terms of, of there is a, there's another kingdom that's at war with this kingdom. And the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is forcefully advancing for those who will take hold of it. Taking hold of the kingdom of God in this context is to join in its purpose to build it up. To build it up by loving one another and strengthening one another and to reach out in evangelism. That's your role and mine, to build one another up in love. God's love is building a kingdom, and because it is in the nature of love to build, it should shape our desires. We should desire that God's kingdom would expand, that it would go not that it would go out into Jerusalem and then into Judea and into all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
it, we should, there should be a holy discontent within us uh, that, 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 that to go beyond the status quo so that God can use that desire for the benefit of His people and His mission in the world. And uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about, as I was writing that, I was thinking about the tension of a discussion that I had uh, with, um, with Amanda today, who has this holy discontent within her. She wants to see the, the youth group, the youth group, the teens that are attending youth group fulfill all the purposes that God has for them and know His love in a way that she didn't get to know when she was that age. Um, and she wants to know all the things, and she wants to accomplish all the education, and she wants to be all the, all the, th- all the things that God wants her to be. And so on the, on the, so on the one hand, uh, we were telling her today, but you can't allow that discontent to cause you to try and rush ahead of where God has you being developed right now. So we enjoy the journey, but we should never lose the fire. Like I was saying on Sunday, we should never lose the fire. We should never let our first love grow cold. We need to maintain and hold up a standard and a vision that the church could be better than every other kind of community that is in the world, right? That, uh, that the church could work through the problems that the, that the rest of the world would find debilitating to their relationship, and that the church could do more together than, they would, than, than what we'd be able to do on our own, that we'd be able to do more radical um, and extreme acts of love than we could do on our own, and to hold that high vision and standard that God's will could be done on earth as it's already being done in heaven. We should look for and long for love that builds in our local church. So, if there's no desire for and no plan for evangelism in a local church, that local church is short on love. And so guess what? The primary, I'll just give you a sneak preview of, um, of, of the uh, town hall next week. What's, what's missing, what's missing to, to my heart and my mind in our vision is a plan for evangelism, is a plan for reaching out. We have been pushing into the community but maybe, but I feel that I have lacked, I feel that the Spirit has, has shown me that I have lacked in, in clearly uh, leading us to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples. It's in our mission. Our mission is to make Christ-like disciples. That's the Nazarene Church's mission in the nation. But we need a plan for evangelism. And so that's what I'm really excited to share with you, the little piece that I'll be sharing. And Pastor Ryan says i got to keep it to five minutes, and I'm like, mm. But uh, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to limit it to this very narrow window of here's the plan for evangelism that God has been laying on my heart. Here's the plan. <laughs> you guys are shaking your heads, and I, it makes me want to squeeze it in in five minutes just to prove you wrong. Um, not, not in like a competitive, prideful way, but like in a humble, I just want, you know, for you to see that I care about your feelings too. Um, I'm looking over at my office mom over there. Um, <laughs> so we should look for uh, and long for love that builds in our local church. If there's no thought of new initiatives in a local church, then it might be short on love. Not that we'd be doing stuff for doing stuff's sake, but that we are constantly thinking about how can we utilize the people, the gifts, the resources, the abilities, the dreams, the visions of the people we have right now to uh, develop new ways of pushing into our community with the light of Jesus so that the darkness is pushed back and the light is growing, right? 
If, if, if you're part of a church where you don't see concern to see the gospel pushed through to the hardest places, it might be short on love. If there's no desire to send people out to the ends of the earth and to support people who are doing that kind of work, it might be short on love. If there's no desire to see people become more like Christ and not just receive grace and then be good, it might be short on love because, well, more about that in a minute. Okay. Verse 20. <laughs> Getting verse 20, chapter 12, verse 20, Paul continues. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I might not find you as I want you to be. You may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. So secondly, hugging it out means we grieve instead of pretending to be naive. We grieve instead of pretending to be naive, meaning Paul is concerned that the evidence says that the Corinthians are drifting away from Jesus. His last visit, which was his second visit to the Corinthian church after planting it, revealed that there was overt sin in the church. And that's what he references at the end of 21. And you can go and read 1 Corinthians 5, in particular, that, that uh, there's all this infighting. They're even suing one another. And then there's a man who slept with his mother-in-law and was proud about it and bragging about it in the church. And so, he's, uh, and so he's, he's saying, the last time I was there, it was clear that the fruit of this church was not all rooted in Christ. His last visit revealed overt sin. And now he's been delaying his visit because there's a more subversive kind of sin at work in the church. And that is that they have begun to believe false teaching and they've begun to quarrel with one another over beliefs and to gossip and backbite. Some, are saying, some as in the second visit, are still um, creating factions of division. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Uh, he's a better speaker than him and so on and so forth. And Paul says, I've been delaying my third visit, which was one of their grievances against him that he didn't come when he said he was going to. He said, I've been delaying because I've been afraid of what I'm going to see. And I know that when I come, I can't ignore it anymore. Because if we're, going to, if we're going to hug it out and we're going to have true reconciliation, if we're going to express the true love of the family of Christ, we can't ignore sin. And so when I, when I come, I'm afraid of what I'm going to find because I don't just want to keep the peace. I intend to make peace. Do you know there's a difference between keeping the peace and making peace? Yeah. Keeping the peace is just maintaining the status quo by continually sweeping it under the rug and hiding it in the closet. Making peace is getting it all out in the open and finding common ground to stand on together and, find, and, and recognizing ways that we need to change together. Okay, And so Paul's saying, I'm going to make peace, but that's not what I want. I don't want to have to come and bring, uh, bring a rod of discipline. I don't want to have to come, but I will because we're not going to be naive, and I'm afraid that you're being naive about your sin and think treating it as though it's not a big deal. I will not. And that's what he gets into in chapter 13. He says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's quoting Deuteronomy 19.15 there. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Because they were saying that his, his, there was no power in his teaching. He, said, he, said, he goes on, he says, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 
For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. And likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. So Paul quotes, first of all, Deuteronomy 19.15. And what he's essentially saying here is, my first two visits were were like eyewitness reports. I came and I saw the fruit that your faith or lack of faith was bearing among you. And this next visit will satisfy the burden of proof to decide if there's a real and ongoing problem there or if the Spirit of Christ is going to rule and reign within you. And he says, if that proves to be the case, I will deal with it head on, unlike the agitators and false prophets who have been quarreling and gossiping and stirring up all kinds of division. Paul says he will handle this like a person who has the resurrection power of the Word living inside of him. In other words, he says, Jesus came, and he was weak and meek in order that sin might work its full iniquity on him and that he'd take it all within himself. But when he burst forth from the grave, all of the power of heaven was unleashed over sin and it was buried forever and he came to life. And he says in the same way, when I come to you, though I'm weak, I'm nothing, I have no authority and no meaning apart from Christ, I have been brought forth from the grave in resurrection power and the Spirit of Christ working through me will take all of this sin and take it to task just like Jesus did on the cross. He, it will die, but we will not because we have been resurrected with Him. He says, we're going to put it to death once and for all is kind of what he's saying here. And I think it's, uh, I, I think as I think of, I think about conflict, okay? Um, I think in our culture, there is a false humility that we use to avoid hard conversations. And what I mean by that is like, we excuse ourselves from hard conversations with things like, well, I don't want to cause any trouble. Or, you know, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't, I don't want to make them feel bad. Or, and so we, it, I think sometimes we mean well. But other times I think that if we really got down to it, we're just afraid that we don't have the power, authority, and anointing to call sin, sin. To call a spade, a spade. And to bring it out into the light and make peace instead of keeping peace. And what Paul says is those who have the Spirit of Christ handle conflict by bringing it into the light and seeking true reconciliation and true restoration. And uh, in referencing Christ, I think it would be appropriate to turn back into Matthew chapter 18 and see how Jesus talks about dealing with sin in, within the church. Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter, and here Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 19:15, may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. So Jesus says there's kind of a a four-step process. First, when there is a problem that you are aware of, go to the the person one-on-one and say, I'm concerned about this. Come in humility. Come in love. Come with gentleness, as other passages admonish us to. But bring it into the light and then seek resolution. There have been times where people have come to me and I've been able to shed a little bit more light on what's going on, and we find resolution that way. Uh, when 
when you come humbly and allow for the full story to be brought into the light and allow for the fact that there may be a log in your own eye that's hindering your ability to clearly remove the speck in your brother's eye, but nonetheless, bring it into the light and deal with it, oftentimes, that's where conflict uh, resolution ends. It's just a simple conversation between the two of us, but the devil is so good at getting us so concerned that, oh, they're not going to receive it well. And pretty soon we start making them even an enemy in our minds. Like, well, if they would do that, I would never do something like that. If they would do that, then they're clearly not going to handle this conversation well. And I don't, I don't even want to bother. I just, I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just going to let it lie. You know what I mean? Like, or somebody calls you and they say they want to talk to you, and you spend the rest of the night just thinking about all the, all the suspicions that you have about them and what they're going to bring and how dare they and See how the devil is so crafty? But Jesus says, Jesus says don't, don't let any of that get in the way. Go to one another and bring it out into the light. He says, then, and I would say on the rare occasion, my experience has been on the rare occasion that that can't bring about resolution, then go to someone you can trust, who you know, hopefully, who you know has um, a vested interest in that person, and, and, and say to them, I have a concern and I, what I would like to ask is that you don't, um, you don't go into great detail with that person, because sometimes then gossip happens outside, and we prejudge and pre-resolve. Instead, just say, I have a concern about this brother, and I wonder if you could come and listen to the concern together, and we would seek the Holy Spirit together for their good, and then have that conversation. And I would, I would, suspect, that, uh, I would suspect that that will resolve most of the rest of the cases. But from there, then it says bring it to the church. Now, uh, that doesn't mean stand up on Sunday morning and say, I'd like to call brother so-and-so to the front and then tell the whole church. Uh, what it means is that uh, the leadership, uh, those, that, 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 a, that a team of anointed people, you could think of like in Acts, uh, Stephen and, and Philip, like a team kind of like that, this group of people assigned to, uh, to handle matters of the church would hear together, almost like going before a jury and hearing the concern together. And then through prayer and um, the admonishment of the Word and gentle and humble conversation inviting repentance and restoration, that that's how it would be dealt with. And then from there, what's supposed to happen, and we dealt with this in detail when we were in 1 Corinthians, what's supposed to happen is the church is supposed to say, you clearly don't have the best interest of God's church in mind. And we love you. And we want desperately, Paul says to a man who slept with somebody's mother-in-law and bragged about it, that he hoped to restore him to the church. Remember, the goal is strengthening. The goal is building up. But when someone refuses after uh, careful and humble and loving admonishment from brothers and sisters who have shared life and service shoulder to shoulder with one, each other, one another, they are not putting Christ's church at the forefront of their interest. And so he says, cast them out. Tell them, tell them that until they're prepared to, uh, to be um, full of love and care for the whole fellowship, that, uh, that they can't be here because the enemy will use that as, as a foothold to build a stronghold. We, don't, we, we are not people who are naive. We Instead, we grieve sin and we deal with it. Augustine said, it's better, it's better to love with the accompaniment of severity than to mislead by excess of lenience. It's better to love with the accompaniment of severity than to mislead by excess of lenience. It's hard. It's really hard. Accountability is hard in the modern day. We are too private, too independent, too proud, and oftentimes 
too selfish. And so a lot of times we hold one another at arm's length and insist on our autonomy, which flies in the face of the radical one-anotherness of the New Testament church that Christ established. And so that's what Paul's getting at. Uh, going back to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, um, he then turns the table back on ourselves. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus lives in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. So thirdly, hugging it out means carrying a compact. You know what I'm talking about? It's a little mirror that you carry around and you check your appearance regularly. Uh, I dated a girl who literally every time we went somewhere, it was constant checking. And if we walked in the way, like compact came out, check, checking in the mirror, checking in the mirror, checking in the mirror. Um, what, I would, what, I, what I think Paul is suggesting here is that to live at peace with one another, to aim for restoration or strive for restoration and to build each other up and encourage one another means we're going to have to, we're going to, have, to have a lifestyle change, a lifestyle change that involves constantly examining ourselves to see that we are, as he says, in the faith. What, is it, what, is it, what do we look for? We'll turn to 1 John chapter 5. That's towards the end of your Bibles. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. John says, this is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, since the Reformation, the church has sometimes shied away from this kind of strong language about examining ourselves to see that we're in the faith. We don't want people to turn inward believing that their own uh, works can save them. We want them to focus outwardly to the objective work of Christ on our behalf. But Paul and John and all the other New Testament writers have no problem saying that if the objective work of Christ has been received, there will be evidence as such. And what John says is, the evidence is, the way that you know when you look in the mirror, if you are in the faith, is you obey His commands. You obey His commands. You obey the direction and the voice and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You obey the commands laid out in the Scriptures. You obey the guidance of the corporate body of faith, collect the collective conscience as it were. As you look in the mirror, you, the number one question you ask yourself is, is there evidence of faith by my obedience? By my obedience. Okay, this is not to say, I mean, John, John carefully, after saying this is, love for, this is what love for God looks like, to obey His commands, he says that anyone, anyone who obeys His commands has overcome the world. That's what our faith leads to. But where does that faith come from? The one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So he says, yes, faith is not something that you earn. It, salvation is not something that you earn. Uh, freedom is not something that you can attain on your own. But you, if, if you have received the freedom that Christ has granted you, there will be evidence. And the evidence is that you will begin to obey more and more and more and more and more. The obedience. This is how we know that we love God and is that we obey His commands. Jesus put it this way, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree 
by its fruit. If there's no fruit or it's bad fruit, then it's not what it says it is. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. And then he says, that is, if you are. You might find that when you test yourself, you're not in the faith because you discover you're not obeying the Spirit and the Word of Christ. Paul and John and the New Testament writers regularly bring to our attention that uh, Jesus brings us to repentance and faith, and fruit is the marker sign that we have done so. Um, so there, I heard a, heard a pastor tell a story about a man who wanted to run a marathon. He shared that dream with his friend. Uh, his friend said, great, let's go running tomorrow. And the man said, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to read a book about running, and it's called Running. And then, uh, and, and there's some things I want to read about circadian rhythms and sleep and, and fasting and diets and uh, before, before we start. So let me do that and then I'll get back with you and we'll start running. And the other, the other man was like, we need to just start running. If we're going to run a marathon, we need to just start running. We don't have to figure all of that stuff out right now. And so he, was, he just started running and he was always bugging his friend, are you going to come with me running today? Well, finally, after several months, the man, who, the man who's been studying, he could talk circles about sleep and diets and techniques and all of the ways that you're supposed to run the right way and he finally showed up one day in his running shorts to run and got two miles in and had a stitch in his side and couldn't go any further. The fruit of one man's life was that he could run because he started obeying the simple law, that, uh, the simple law of physical fitness, right? You can talk all day about techniques, but it, most of all, you just need to run. You just need to start running. You need to start building up the endurance. You need to start building up. And so we can get so caught up in, in having all the knowledge and uh, we're afraid to obey God and to step out on faith because we're not sure that we're qualified and we're not sure that we're ready and we're not sure that we know enough. But really what we need to just do is start running with our Savior. We, need to just start, we just need to start following His voice and His lead. And some people will say, well, you know, the grace of God runs deep and deep, 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 deep down. Like deep down. Yeah, I know you can't see it, but it's down in there, deep, deep. They want to do the right thing. And Jesus says, if you come to an apple tree that has no fruit or bears bad fruit, it doesn't matter if deep, 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 deep down in the roots somewhere there's an apple, apple tree seed, cut it down and throw it in the fire. Either bear the fruit or cut it down. So check your mirror and do something about it. James uh, 1, verses 22 says, uh, if anyone... Excuse me. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If anyone listens to the Word but does not do what it says, he is like a man who looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The one who will finish the race that's been marked out for them is the one who does what the Word says, who follows the command. So hugging it, hugging it out means carrying a compact. It means examining ourselves. Then finally, Paul closes. He says, Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent. 
that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. And this is a, this is a lesson that I think I've learned quite keenly, having transitioned from associate ministry to lead ministry. Hugging it out continues in prayer no matter what. Hugging it out continues in prayer no matter what. As you see in verse 7, he says, Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. In other words, what he's saying is, ultimately, I don't care what you think about me. I, you, you've said that I'm not, I, I don't speak as well. You've said that I didn't follow through on my commitments. You've said, you've said all kinds of things against me. And I've laid out my defense, but at the end of the day, I don't care about my reputation. This was not ever about me. My primary concern, he says, is that you would repent and cling to Christ. I only, at the end of the day, I only care that you would know Christ crucified and that you would put your lives in Him. And I wonder if that might, if that attitude could become our attitude if that might be the impetus and the strength that we would need where there would be more stories about having trust broken or expectations unmet, but reconciliation occurring instead of separation. I wonder if the church would, church's witness would be more bright and marvelous in the world if there weren't so many out lambasting the church for the hurt that it's caused, but instead sharing about how, man, I, there was a time when I thought I could never be okay with the church and its people, but by the grace of Christ and the power of Christ, we worked through it, and we worked through the conflict, and we dealt with it because we really love each other. Because at the end of the day, no matter what, I want my brothers and sisters to be, for the work of God to be deepened in their lives. So what do we pray for those who persecute us, that God would deepen His work in their lives, no matter what? What do we pray for those who don't like us or don't agree with us or slander us or accuse us or speak, uh, speak out of turn or gossip about us? We pray that the work of God would deepen, be deepened in their lives. And what do we pray for those closest to us, that God would deepen His work in their lives? The aim of true love and reconciliation is to build, to correct, and that we would mutually grow up in Christ together. And that's where Paul ends. He says, I'm coming to you soon, and I'm praying that when, when I get there, that we could all be one in Christ. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank You for Your Word. What a unique letter. Sometimes, um, sometimes I'm shocked uh, by the things that are included in, in the Scriptures uh, but then I'm also blessed that you have not held any of this back, that we can see clearly that, um, that there is a war going on, but we can see even more clearly that you've won the war. And so we have an invitation and uh, the opportunity to live in the power of Christ and be completely other, completely set apart and sanctified, uh, wholly different than the world. And God, I just pray that you would um, keep in me um, a hope and a fire uh, for the high vision that you have for the church and for the world, and uh, that likewise um, my brothers and my sisters would be mutually unified and um, intently focused on fulfilling all that you have for us 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if we could, anybody that can, if we could wipe the tables down uh, and uh, 